You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Friends and family of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is risen. Folks, I suspect that it is the sheer familiarity of our Lord's final words, those that we call the Great Commission, uh, that conceals from us the truly staggering nature of what he's called us to do. What does it look like, after all, to make a whole nation into a disciple of Christ? What would it look like to make disciples of all the nations? Well, whatever it looks like, It's absolutely immense. It's far bigger than we have typically understood, I dare say. Indeed, as I'll seek to demonstrate today, when Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, he's making the church's mission in the earth nothing less than the Christianizing of the world, something that our fathers would have spoken of as spreading Christendom to the ends of the earth. This is truly an extraordinary moment. And these are extraordinary things that Jesus leaves us with as our mission in life in his final words. Uh, In today's podcast, I'm sharing with you a second sermon that I preached back in 2010 on those final words of our Lord that define the true mission of the church. I'm calling uh, this again, Global Conquest. And this message seeks to uh, impress upon us all the sheer greatness of the great Commission. Now, I want to note to you that uh, this is a sermon today that seeks to show how unified the whole Bible is around this theme of global conquest by the people of God in service to the anointed King of God. There's a world of Old Testament prophecy and expectation that's uh, being tapped into by our Lord in these his final words, all that had been attempted and miserably failed under the old covenant was finally now going to be successful. There's something fundamentally the same then about the mission of the church in the old covenant as in the new covenant. However, there's also something radically different about the way this conquest will come about, as Jesus makes clear in what we've called here his resurrection proclamation. Uh, he outlines a new way of the advancing of the kingdom of God, one that's no less ambitious than the one found in the Old Testament, yet uh, it's radically different in its tools and its technique. Uh, The rest of the New Testament puts on display this distinctly Christian way of achieving global conquest, a way that uh, sets it apart, for example, from the kind of world dominion that's sought by radical Islam. So, folks, last time we saw how the Lord testifies to a new authority and power that he's been clothed with as a result of his victory over death, and we saw last time how he intends to use that power to bring about the final coming of his kingdom on the earth. Today, we're going to see how he intends to use us, his people, to bring about this global conquest. And this is truly a greater commission than we might have thought. That's what's ahead, folks, uh, if you choose to listen on. The last few words of Matthew's gospel 
the last words of our Lord Jesus as recorded by Matthew. We'll read from verse 16 through verse 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Studying these famous final words of our Lord Jesus, they are the words that are a fitting finale to Matthew's whole gospel. Matthew ends his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, not with deeds of our Lord, but with these words, this, what we called last week, resurrection proclamation. He is invested now in a new way with authority and power in heaven and in earth. And on that basis, as the king who'd come into his kingdom, he's commissioning his servants. He's about to leave them. We know this from other gospel accounts. But he will leave them with words which will forever define their mission in life. Now, we saw last week, Matthew is emphasizing these words by the very way that he ends this book. These are the things which he wants hanging in the air, ringing in our ears. These words of commission. Jesus said many a shocking thing. But brothers and sisters, I want you this morning to realize, if you've never realized it before, that this was one of the most shocking things Jesus ever said. I want you to have a sense of the voltage running through these words. I want you to be shocked by it again this morning. And in order for that to happen, in order for us to recognize Jesus is calling for nothing less than global conquest. In his name, we need to enter in to the way his words would have been heard by those 11 men who stood before him. Now, brothers and sisters, there's something about what Jesus says to them that was familiar. There's actually something in these words that's old. There's also something in these words that's very new to those men. There's something new, and there's unmistakably something immense. And we'll spend our time looking under those three headings, something old, something new, and something immense. What's the old? Well, brothers and sisters, if the disciples heard Jesus say these things, they would have recognized Jesus is republishing a very old agenda of global conquest. They would have heard that as he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now this was new in his ministry to be sure. Jesus had in the past, as he sent the disciples out, Matthew 10, he had said, go, but go only to the tribes of Israel. Don't go outside of the nation of Israel. In that sense, then, what Jesus is saying is new in terms of his own earthly ministry. He's now telling them to go to all the nations. The word is the word ethna. You get the word ethnic or ethnicity from that in our English language. That 
Israelites were an ethna. They were a nation. They were the nation of all the nations that God had thus far focused all his blessing upon. But now Jesus, they would have heard him say, is telling them to take this gospel work to all the nations. And the nations that would have come to their mind as he heard those things were no doubt nations like Samaria, like Macedonia, like Ethiopia, like Egypt, like Cappadocia, like Asia, even the Cretans, even the Arabians. That little list of uh, nations I just borrowed from Acts 2. The list of nations that hears the preaching of the Apostle Peter in their own tongue. They, those disciples there on the mountain, would have heard him speak about all those nations as he, de- as he described their mission of going to all the nations. Now, this is the point that I'm making here in this first heading. The disciples actually had a category for this. There was something old about the agenda Jesus is putting before them. There was a whole succession of Old Testament prophecies that to that point lay unfulfilled, that had to do with all the nations. Those men would have known that, and they would have known that Jesus, in saying this, was in effect putting the drivetrain of all those prophecies into gear with these words. Something ancient, very old, was coming to fulfillment here. In just a few moments, I'm going to give you a taste of how much of the old was being fulfilled. When you hear the word or the phrase, all nations, through Jewish first century ears, you have to go first back to Abraham. Of course, you have to go back to the father of the Jews. Abram had his name changed to be Abraham. And so he would be the father of a nation or a great multitude. That was the significance of his name. But it got better than that. What God promised to Abraham was not only that he would come to be a vast nation of descendants that were numbered like the sand of the sea or the star, stars of the skies. Abraham was also given this promise. The Jews had never forgotten it. Through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Abraham, something is going to happen through you and through your descendants that's going to be the means of circling the globe with blessing. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. Genesis 22 gives us this. God says to Abraham after his particularly heroic display of faith, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So as the disciples heard Jesus say, go make disciples of all the nations, they would have heard this part of a very old agenda. God had promised to use the people of Abraham to bless all the nations. There's a second thing we ought to remember as we hear through their ears Jesus' words, all nations. That second thing, if you'll fast forward in your minds, the days of Moses would be this. God promised his people through his servant Moses that they would come to rule over 
all the nations. God made this promise several times and in many ways through Moses. He would give the people of Israel victory in their conquest over the nations. Deuteronomy 15 verse 6 is an example of this. The Lord your God will bless you as he promised you and you shall lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. And another place in Deuteronomy, he says, God will set you in praise and fame and honor high above all the nations. That was another category that the disciples already had when Jesus used the expression, all nations, make disciples of all nations. Not only would, had God said through Abraham that the people of Israel would be a blessing to all the nations, he's also said through Moses that the people of God would be preeminent over all the nations. Now, is a question for me in your mind as you try to put those two things together? The question runs something like this. Well, which is it? Which of those two is it? It couldn't be both. You can't have all the nations blessed through the descendants of Abraham and have all the nations conquered by the descendants of Abraham, can you? They can't both be true. Which is it? Well, in fact, it is both. The blessing that would come to all the nations through Israel would come about as they were conquered by Israel. Did you hear that? We're summing up a whole sweep of Old Testament history and prophecy that refers to the nations outside of Israel. It's very important that you understand how those two things can go together. All the nations would be blessed but they would be blessed by being conquered. You can call this a benevolent conquest. That is the old agenda that the disciples would have heard, renewed in Jesus' words. You and I have a hard time putting those two things together, perhaps especially because in our day and perhaps particularly in our own nation, we can't imagine having all authority and power over us concentrated in a single individual as compatible with blessing. We're the anti-monarchial society, are we not? That's how we came into existence, isn't it? We have a better way of governing. And if our early patriot was right, it'd be better to die than to submit ourselves to one man, a king. That runs deep. And our blood as Americans, but it's a very different view than the biblical view of kingship. From a biblical perspective, there is such a thing as a wise and benevolent king who rules justly and brings prosperity by that just rule. Now, that king is a rarity. That's very clear from the scripture as well. But if such a king could be found, such a king whose people would flourish under his dominion, who would have all power consecrated in his holy and just will, then that king would actually become the envy of the nations. And it would be a blessed thing 
to come irresistibly under his sway to be conquered and ruled by such a king. And brothers and sisters, that is precisely the old agenda of the old covenant scriptures about the king of the Jews. He would become the king of all the nations to their good, to their blessing. The conquest of the nations would be the deliverance of the nations. Did you hear that? The conquest of all the nations would be the deliverance of all the nations. That's embodied in that psalm that was chosen for our opening psalm this morning. It's a psalm that's been edited in order to give it away. The New Testament fulfillment. Jesus shall reign where the sun takes its course. But that's a psalm taken from Psalm 72, taken from the poetry written about King Solomon. The king of the Jews. King Solomon. And this is what's read or what is written about that Psalm 72, beginning at verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations. Call him blessed. Do you hear this vision of the king of the Jews gaining dominion over all the nations, but it's a conquest that's unto their deliverance, their redemption, their true liberty and release from oppression and the like. This past week, my family is reading in our Bible reading book, story book, about one little taste of how this happens. The Queen of Sheba actually literally brings gold to Solomon. And the Queen of Sheba's coming in order to listen to the man. His fame as a wise and just king has spread among all the nations. And she's come and she hears him speak about all things. He's a scientist, he's an artist. He's a theologian. He speaks in all these things. And this is what the Queen of Sheba says. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king. You may execute justice and righteousness. Do you hear a little bit of Royal envy there. You hear a little bit of a smittenness in that monarch. 
Isaiah envisions a time, this is the old agenda, the Jews listening to Jesus on that mountain would have remembered. Isaiah foretells a time when all the nations will do what the Queen of Sheba began to do. As you know, very famously, Isaiah begins his book, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Dear people, what I'm seeking to impress upon you is that this great agenda of benevolent global conquest by the king of the Jews that runs all throughout the Old Testament until this moment that Jesus speaks, that agenda lay fallen to the ground, smoldering in some library. It lay unfulfilled. When Jesus says, you now go, make disciples of all the nations. There's voltage, high voltage indeed running through those words because they catch up in them a vast old agenda of global conquest. There had been no king that was wise enough or good enough or just enough to become the envy of all the nations. But this man, Jesus, lately crucified for claiming to be the king of the Jews and vindicated by the power of the Father from heaven, stands before these men and he puts back into gear that old agenda. The book of Acts is what records for us that agenda getting launched in a glorious new way. So Jesus is appealing to that old agenda. He is saying, and in fact, this is now the coming of the kingdom, the conquest of the nations, bringing all men under my authority, under my power. Nothing less than that was the theme of the law and the prophets. As Isaiah had foretold, And Jesus had earlier cited him. The house of God would become a house of prayer for all the nations. So, the disciples would have heard something old, glorious, but old, an old agenda for global conquest. They would have heard a second thing that was very new. Here's what they would hear new. It was a new strategy for global conquest. The newness of this conquest or strategy would come about in these two ways. Jesus gives them new tools and a new technique for global conquest. Well, the new tools, well, he sends them to secure this dominion on behalf of the king of the Jews by means of water and words. Those are the tools. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, that would have sounded new uh, to these men, especially new in comparison to the old agenda. There's no talk here of the bow or of the sword. 
That was a legitimate method of the king of Israel seeking dominion in the old days. But that would be opposed to the kind of strategy Jesus charges his men with after his death. Now, I realize this is a familiar point to you. I realize that you already do this conversion, as it were. You go in the Old Testament, you hear about all the blood, the swords, the bows, the spears, the chariots, and all the rest. And you spiritualize that, as you rightly may and should. And you recognize we fight with different uh, weapons. I want to emphasize to you this morning, as commonplace as that is, this is the reason. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is the reason why our jihad as the people of Christ, is so radically different from other kinds of holy wars being fought even in our day. Very mindful are you of this, indeed, as you rightly should be. But, brothers and sisters, Muslims in our day and throughout the last 2,000 years are not the only ones who've had a radical ambition for global conquest. That's not what distinguishes us from Islam. Our agenda of global conquest. And as I've said to you before, when you think about the methods being used by what are called the radical Islamic faction throughout the world today, you may from time to time be reminded of the methods, the strategy of advancing the kingdom that's outlined in your Old Testament scriptures. What is the difference between the way the kingdom advanced in the Old Testament and the way Islam seeks to advance the kingdom today. Well, not as much as you might think. Both sought worldwide conquest in the name of their religion. Both recognized the legitimacy of the sword to accomplish this. And both put a high value on martyrdom. Samson is sung as a great deliverer of Israel because he took his own life in order to take Many of the enemies of Israel's lives. But here's the difference, brothers and sisters. Islam has no New Testament. Islam has no gospel. They have a kingdom, but they don't have a gospel of the kingdom. Islam has no king who commissions his servants to go as he did, not destroying his enemies but dying for them. Islam has no category for weapons of water and words. Once these two tools for achieving dominion over the nations are of such importance, we'll return to those, Lord willing, next week. I'm simply now highlighting the radical difference between the old tools and these new tools. When the king did finally come to Israel the king who would bring about this great global conquest, he chose not the weapons used theretofore. His weapon was sacrificial love. It was mercy. It was a jihad of mercy, not of judgment. That is why we use these weapons to this day. He gives them new tools. He also gives them a second thing that was new, and that was a new technique. I see that in the very first word of verse 19. He says to them, go. 
you're thinking, after what I've just been talking about, that the contrast between the old way of advancing the kingdom and the new way of advancing the kingdom is that the new way of advancing the kingdom is just not as aggressive as the old way. Think again. You are very mistaken. Jesus puts new weapons in the hands of his disciples, but there is nothing less. There's only more aggression in advancing this agenda of global conquest. When Jesus uses the word go, he signals that to these men. In effect, take the fight for my dominion to the enemy. Take the fight to them. Don't simply sit here in the promised land waiting for the fight to come to you. Now, that was new. That was substantially new. That was not precisely the vision of the Old Testament. Remember the language of the prophets? The language of the prophets is, after, to be sure, Israel used the sword and the bow to cleanse the land God had promised to Abraham, after they secured the land that God was to give, God did give to Abraham and to his descendants, then they were to be a holy people, a righteous people, who would consequently be blessed. The the heavens would absolutely open and blessing would fall upon them. And here's what would happen. This is the old covenant agenda. The nations would start to notice. They'd say, what kind of a nation has laws like this? What kind of a nation has God, a God like this who blesses in those ways? They'd come like the Queen of Sheba and they'd come and knock on the door and say, "Um, can we ask you a few questions? We're really curious about how this has come to be so good for you. The direction, if you will, the old covenant was the nations would come. They would come as we sang just a few moments ago. Jesus calls for something much more aggressive. He now says, you don't wait for them. You go. Go to all the nations. And you take my claims where they live, where they live in their darkness and idolatry. You go and call them to my lordship wherever they are. You get in their face. You call them to repentance. You offer them forgiveness of sins. And you teach them how I would have them live. I know that that may sound old to you, Christians living in the 21st century. But this was brand new. The moment Jesus said these things. The Old Testament advancement of the gospel was, some have said, by centripetal force. You're scratching around trying to figure out, what what, what is that? That word means directed to the center. Jerusalem was the center and the nations would come to Jerusalem. Jesus is outlining a new strategy. It will be centrifugal force in this new covenant age. The kingdom will go from the center, from Jerusalem, out to Samaria, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I'm not trying to pit these two methods against each other. Jesus had endorsed, actually, the old method back in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember, that's when he said, you who follow me are the light of the world. You're like a city that can't be hidden. You don't put a bushel basket over that. 
It gives light to all the nations. So he says to them, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's the old agenda or the old method. Jesus endorses that. And that is a powerful way of fulfilling the commission where you are and where you live. But Jesus is not satisfied with that. He's not content that his disciples simply shine where they are. He says to them, go, go to all the nations. This is the missionary movement. It's launched by these few high voltage words. And how fitting that Jesus would bring about a change of strategy in that way. The king who himself went into the place of his enemies and brought about their salvation, not waiting for them to come to him. This was new. This new strategy, tools, and method. And brothers and sisters, all of that should lead us to recognize as the disciples who stood there, perhaps with weak knees, This thing Jesus is calling us to is absolutely, unmistakably immense. It's bigger than big. This is mind-boggling immense. Have you gotten a sense of it already? A sense of how big a thing Jesus was calling for these 11 men to do? How do you disciple a nation? How do you go about that? Well, let's start a little smaller. How do you disciple a person? Well, you disciple a person by introducing them to the one who's their rightful master. You introduce that person to their rightful master. You assure them that that master is willing to be served by them despite all they've done. He's willing to forgive them, to restore them, and to make them a worthy servant. And then you begin to show that person the way to fulfill his will in their life. If that person's a mother, then you begin and continue long to talk about all the ways that being a disciple of Christ affects the role of mothering. From 5.30 in the morning till 11.30 at night, or whatever your longest day was this past week. You disciple a mother. You're talking about every way that what Jesus has laid upon us by way of obligation uh, can be fulfilled in that woman's life. If you disciple a businessman, you do something very similar. After introducing him to the master, after bringing about this relationship... You say to him, all right, this is going to change everything you do. It's going to affect everything you do. There's nothing you do in business that will stay the same if Christ is your master. I could go on. If you do that with a teenager, you fit everything that Jesus said to their life and to all the circumstances, even to a toddler. That's what you're doing if you're parents of toddlers. But Jesus didn't say make disciples of persons. That would be big enough. He speaks to them of the biggest of all groupings that we have in mankind. The social phenomenon called a nation. 
that which unites whole peoples in societies. He wants national discipleship, societal discipleship. And so I ask again, how do you disciple a nation? How does Haiti become a disciple as a nation of the Lord Jesus Christ? How could the Haitian people as a people become a disciple? Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you can see it's by everything I've said on a much bigger scale. A nation becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ when it's People, when the persons that make up that nation do all that I have just described and that affects the whole structure of the nation, all that which binds it together as a nation, the laws of the land, the customs of the lands, all the societal structures of the lands. That's staggering, especially to be saying this in a time when the great force that was at work in the world discipling the nations was Rome. Rome knew how to disciple nations. Rome came in their benevolent conquest and they said, here, we have a new language for you. We have new laws for you. We certainly have new masters and governors and the like for you. We have a whole new way for you to live. Jesus is saying, you Band of brothers, 11 strong. You make that happen for me. Do you know there's actually a serious debate about whether this great commission is intended for all of you as laymen in the church or whether it's really just to be heeded by the clergy? ordained ministry. That's a debate in studies of this passage. Those who insist that this is really just applicable to the clergy point out that he does talk about baptizing. You know, we don't want everybody baptizing. And he talks about teaching, and that's particularly a role for ministers of the gospel to have. The other side of the debate says, yes, but making disciples includes more than that. Everybody can hand out a tract. Everybody can learn a simple presentation of the gospel. Everybody can go one-on-one to help a new Christian learn more about the Christian life. They're both right. Do you see how they're both missing how immense this commission really is? They're both missing it. They both shrunk down the size of this so-called great commission to include only evangelizing and discipling individual Christians. Now, that's at the core of what Jesus calls for. Brothers and sisters, the vision of the songwriters of Israel, the vision of the prophets of Israel was far bigger than this. And Jesus' vision is no smaller than theirs. He says, disciple all nations. You know, the word that has been coined to speak about the advancing of the kingdom nation by nation. You know that word? It's an old-fashioned word, fallen into some disuse today. It's the word Christendom. That's a reference 
to the, the kingdom of God advancing nation by nation. When whole nations come to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, in light of that, make disciples of all nations, I ask you, what's that going to take? Really gets to the answer of this debate we have among ourselves. Well, it will require men preaching and baptizing. And it will require those with gifts for presenting the gospel, doing that work. But brothers and sisters, for whole nations to be brought into conformity to the commandments of Christ, it will take conspicuously Christian men and women infiltrating every part of their society to bring about obedience to the commandments of Christ. It will take all of us, young and old, indeed, because it is so immense. It could not be accomplished apart from every man, woman, and child having their part. That's why this commission is, rightly, the whole reason for your existence as a Christian. Now, these things are how those disciples would have heard our Lord's words. Something old about this. Something being brought back into play. Something new about this, not like our fathers knew, a new way of kingdom advancement. And something more immense than even we, or all our love of the Psalms and the prophets, would have imagined. Brothers and sisters, am I speaking too big for you this morning? Is it too immense to take in? It's that immensity that has led many to recognize that actually this is the second time that this great commission has been brought to man. The first time was on a mountain as well. The first time involved an all-encompassing mission of global conquest. It was in a place called Eden. In the first age of Middle-earth, there the commission was to this effect. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you hear the, the call of global conquest? Well, Adam... His descendants failed miserably in this commission. What you're to hear in Jesus' words, his final words, is his success already in accomplishing these things for us and his determination to succeed in accomplishing them through us. That creation mandate envisioned a whole earth brought into conformity by, to God's will by means of the faithfulness of his servants. And the redemption mandate envisions nothing less than this. So you should think of this as the Great Commission 2.0. And this will be a commission not too big to succeed. Jesus assures these men of that when he concludes his final words, Behold, I am with you always.
to the end of the age. Amen. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.